Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good evening. Last week, my thought would be our last talk uh, or exploration of uh, the relationship between Carl Jung's work and his life and um, this practice that we do. I've stretched it into this week because I want to move a little bit from what happened in Carl Jung's life to what's going on in your own life and just let that come to the surface a little bit. So those of you who've been listening with a kind of intellectual hat on, maybe just to take that hat off tonight. So we can just explore uh, in our own lives how these teachings, these ideas, these practices, or another person's life um, uh, impacts our own, or allows us to see our life in a different way. From a Buddhist perspective, the whole thing comes down to the fact that our life is strained, our heart is strained. We lose people that we love, we uh, can't always get what we want. Um, our bodies are impermanent. They're changing. The people we love get ill. We get ill. We can't choose the kind of death we want. Maybe uh, those of us who do a lot of work around contemplating our own death, sometimes we get attached to that, oh, we're going to have a good death. But you can't choose your death. Um, probably if you have a good practice that you've been working on for a long time, when death comes, I personally think that when you die, you're going to meet all kinds of things. And if what you meet is really unpleasant, that it's good that you have a mind that will know how to meet that. And if what you meet is painful, it's good that you'll have a mind that can do that. But then, uh, in really contemplating that as an existential level, also to consider it just in your day. Do you have a mind that can meet what's unpleasant? Do you have a mind that can meet boredom? Uh, in our sangha, in this community, there are a lot of people here who are extremely talented great artists and you know so many people in the work that you do you're extremely talented so also I hope in your practice you also meet not talented you also meet boredom you also meet not being special it's the shadow side of being special is how to be not special oh and you can make that special too I'm really working on not being special <laughs> Um, the reason why there is dharma to begin with, why there is a practice to begin with, is just because of this strain that we have in our lives. And I think that someone becomes a dharma student when they stop blaming the strain on the government and on their parents and can get into that level where, yes, there are things in the exterior that need to change, and also there's a basic strain in our heart that we need to learn how to work with. 
And I think that until we can drop into that view, then we're not a student yet. And I was like this. The first many years of practice, I just was like a book Buddhist, where it's just you have a stack of books beside your bed about meditation, but you're too scared, actually, to really meditate. So you just keep reading about it. And it's good to know other people are doing it. Um, in Pali, there's a wonderful word, which is nivarna, which is the word that's always translated as hindrance, nivarna. Not to be confused with nirvana. Nirvana, nivarna. Uh, but actually, what I really like about that word is uh, what it means is to uncover. In Sanskrit, the word niroda. It means to uncover. And I've always found this kind of like a beautiful image that that um, a hindrance is to be co- is, is when something covers over, and the practice is to uncover. And if you practice, it will uncover who you are. And I said this I think a few weeks ago, but if you really want to know who you are, you're not going to find it in books. You can't just think your way into it. There's a there's a a, a term in psychology called um, I forgot something like uh, concrete displacement. I think the term is in psychoanalysis. I'll have to look it up, but it's when you're starting to drop in to yourself. And then, as you start to drop, you grab something on the way that's concrete. And then you just hold on to that. So it's like you start the grieving process, and you start really entering to what it's like to feel grief. And then on the way, some part of the personality goes, oh, I can hold this. And then you grab onto it. You see people do this a lot, like when they did psychedelic drugs. In their, someone does some psychedelic drugs, they find like they have some experience that's really interesting, and then they hold on to that. Well, that's my spirituality. I don't need to practice. I, I saw God. But actually, and I was talking about this earlier today, but there's this wonderful institute called the Max Planck Institute, where they do a lot of cool neuroscience research. And one of the studies that came out from that institute is that to really become skillful at a craft, the neuroscientists have studied this. And what they've learned is that it takes 10,000 hours to be skillful at a craft. So I encourage you in our age of attention deficit hyperactivity to take your breath, and to learn how to become a connoisseur of breathing so that you get to know it for 10,000 hours. Let's all do that together, okay? And then let's see if it works. I mean, I'm sure if you did it for 100 hours, it would be benefit, benefit you in your nervous system and so on. But what's it like to drop in and to drop in for 10,000 hours? Um, I read this passage from a meditator who's also just gotten over uh, uh, being uh, an addict. Uh, In this case, it was drugs and alcohol. Um, This is how they describe their practice, using their meditation practice to deal with their addiction. I did two things. This is how they got over their addiction. First, I began to take good care of my body good diet and exercise. Second, I began to meditate in a different manner than I had been taught. Instead of directing attention to a specific object, tunnel vision, such as breathing, I would sit still and let attention to whatever was distracting me at the moment, whether it was thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, and give complete attention or completely embrace whatever it was with each breath without reacting. 
So embrace whatever it is with each breath, without reacting. For example, if I desired a drink, I would embrace the desire without repressing the desire or acting out the desire by drinking or whatever. I began to trust this process completely because the more that I did it, the freer and happier I felt. And the more I realized I could turn to this process, which I secretly named the wisdom of attention process. The wisdom of attention process. Whenever something was distracting or bothering me, instead of turning to a drink or other substances which are unhealthy, including, including meditation teachers, I just did the wisdom of attention process. Isn't that beautiful? It's really beautiful. So it's like what we were talking about last week. So as we're practicing, what happens is we're connected to the breath. And yes, there is a time for tunnel vision, which is just get connected to the beginning of your inhale. We've been doing that for a month now. And then what happens is once you can stay in the breath, if you can stay with just the sensations that make up your breathing, they start to actually feel pleasurable. Now, you may not feel pleasure, but the sensation of breathing begins to have a feeling of pleasure associated with it. And then something comes over where it just sort of holds you. The breath holds you. And then whatever arises, you can just let the breath harmonize, or he uses the word completely embrace, but just let the breath harmonize with whatever is showing up. And that's the heart of our practice. So if we back up to how Jung defined the self, I think he nailed it. To me, what this addict, recovered addict, uh, describes, and how Jung described the self, they seem identical. Oh, but I actually have to find the passage. I think it was paragraph 274. Oh, there it is. Um, I'll just read it out loud. According to my definition of the self, it's a quantity that is superordinate to the conscious ego. It embraces not only the conscious, but also the unconscious psyche. And it's therefore, so to speak, a personality which we also are. It's easy enough to think of ourselves as possessing part souls. What he means by that, it's easy to think of yourself as having lots of parts. Thus, we can, for instance, see ourselves as a persona without too much difficulty. So, like right now, I'm wearing this mask, but I've also got all these other parts. But it transcends our power of imagination to form a clear picture of what we are as a self. For in this operation, the part would have to comprehend the whole. There's little hope of ever being able to reach even approximate consciousness of the self, since however much we may make conscious, there will always exist an indeterminate and indeterminable amount of unconscious material which belongs to the totality of the self. You can never get to the end of who you are. Hence, the self will always remain a superordinate quantity. You can't ever completely know it. It's beautiful. To me, this is beginner's mind. Um, now let me read from um, a wonderful psychiatrist from New York City named Mark Epstein. Uh, he's talking about being in therapy with one of the founders of Gestalt therapy, a, a guy named Isidore. Um, and uh, how he worked in a session. Uh, these feelings I was having led me to develop coping strategies that had taken on a life of their own. Uh, 
It was like assuming a posture that becomes so habitual it's no longer noticed. I developed ways of dealing with my anxiety that now ran on without me. When I would speak to Isidore about something that was bothering me, for example, I would often preface it with a phrase such as, you know, part of me wishes I could try that again. You don't have parts, he would invariably reply, again skipping over all the content of whatever I was talking about to focus on the way in which I was expressing myself. So he says to the... It's a simple thing. We all do this, right? Simple thing. He says to the therapist, oh, well, a part of me was feeling that way. And the therapist says, you don't have parts, which is exactly what Jung just said. At first, this sort of comment made no sense to me. I was not even aware of having prefaced my remark in such a way. What are you talking about? I wondered. Did I say anything about having parts? But gradually, I started to see how regularly I made use of this kind of language. My tendency to divide myself into conflicting parts was a distancing maneuver I was gauging in with myself. By saying part of me, I was pushing away whatever I was feeling, reducing it to a subset or a fraction of myself, and endowing it with an absolute identity. Do you catch what's happening there? So, it's a very interesting moment. So, he's in a conversation that many of us are in all the time, and then he says, oh, that's that part of me. The therapist says, no, you don't have parts. And then he has an insight that when I say that part of me over there, it's distancing. So, it's separating a me from what I'm feeling. And then there's what we've talked about all month, an observer, right? There's a me having these feelings. I remember in this room when we were just moving in, I was moving in this Buddha and this table and the cushions. And Theodore, who some of you know from Snowline, was helping me. And Theodore donated this, this Buddha. And I was like, running around all over trying to get everything set up. And then I said to Theodore, I'm like, oh, Theodore, now you're seeing the neurotic side of me. And then Theodore said, well, if you're going to be neurotic, just be neurotic. <laughs> um, one of the practices that we do at Center of Gravity here is people come and have meetings with me. And uh, this was a really good month of meetings. I think we, I must have done 30 or 40 meetings this month. When we meet, if you come in and you sit down and we're sitting together and you start telling me all about what you think about your practice, then it feels distancing. It feels like you're telling me the theory, you want me to respond with theory. And the way I try and work with people is for us to sit down together and just for you to show what your practice is. So if there's anxiety in your practice, just to allow yourself to be anxious in your practice. If you're nervous about an interview, to just be nervous about the interview. And I like doing the same thing. Oh, sitting here together right now, I'm feeling whatever. Like people are staring at me. <laughs> Warm. So that the focus of the practice is not holding back. Is not using these distancing maneuvers. And this has a deeper level, which is for Jung, that's the self. The self is unknowable, but the ego's job is to make contact with what's happening in the moment, full contact without <coughs> holding back, and then to step back, release it, and then do it again. 
And this is what we're doing in our practice. We're harmonizing with what's going on in the moment. We're stepping back and experiencing that, seeing that. And then we drop it. And then we do it again, over and over and over. And this is the process of allowing the self to become free. And so our practice that we explore here is to actually become one with the moment so that there's no observer left over. Not watching our experience from a distance, like when Mark Epstein says, oh, that part of me, so that's distancing. So let's see that part of you. Let's see that part of you so fully that it's not a part It's just who you are in this moment. And I think sometimes people get scared where if you really see that, then you'll see me. Don't don't some of us feel this way sometimes? If I really let somebody in, they're going to see me. And then maybe you have feelings of inadequacy or whatever behind that. But from a Jung's perspective and also from a Buddhist perspective, they're not ever going to see you, capital Y, you. They're just seeing who you are in this moment. And then it changes. And then it's something else. So in a way, what you do as a relational practice of showing up with others is exactly the same as what you're doing in your meditation practice. Just like sometimes, and I've had years like this, where my practice feels stale. It just doesn't feel like anything's going on. But I know now from experience that when things get stale, you just keep, it's part of the 10,000 hours. And you get to know what it's like when it's stale. Just like all relationships hit a dry patch. And how do you be there also in the dry patch and know the dry patch? Because something's always brewing at the end of a dry patch. Jung writes, the patient doesn't have to learn how to get rid of her neurosis, but how to bear it. Her illness is not a gratuitous and therefore meaningless burden. It's herself. Isn't that nice? Her illness is not a gratuitous and therefore meaningless burden. It's herself, the other, that she was always seeking to exclude from her life. Then self-acceptance can happen and self-transformation. Isn't that beautiful? So you're neurotic. In another, there's another passage, not in this text, where he says, "A doctor should not remove a patient's neuroses like a dentist takes out a decayed tooth, or you rob someone of their zest and meaning in life." <laughs> so he's saying, your neuroses is, is not some illness to get rid of. It's actually the Dharma gate. It's the gate, it's the door you enter, because that's you. How do you enter it so there's no you left? And you have to do something. Sometimes it happens in in interviews where someone comes in, and they're just trying to be so present, they'll just come. Simone and I were joking about this last week. They just come. And so usually I just look at the watch. Just remind them how much time we have, have to get. That's also being stuck. I'm, I'm so present, there's no words I'm beyond that. That's also being stuck. There's a famous koan about this, where there's a, a student up a tree, holding on to the branch of a tree with her teeth. Okay? And her legs are dangling and can't reach the trunk. And a guy comes down, uh, another student comes down 
walking past, sees her up in the tree, and then says, why did Bodhidharma come from the West? <laughs> and she has to answer. And this is the energy we're trying to create when we meet each other. This is the energy we're trying to allow when we meet each other. So you're up the tree. Where's the tree? So I'm up the tree. And someone comes by and says, hey, what's the meaning of life? I mean, that's basically the question. Why did Bodhidharma come as code language? Or what's the meaning of life? And if I answer, if I open my mouth, I'll fall. Right? And if I stay quiet, I've missed this opportunity. And I have to do something. And your practice should feel like that. You have to do something. You can't just freeze. So the neuroses, a neuroses, is when you freeze. When you're caught, you're frozen. And when you're not frozen, you're being yourself, free. And I don't mean I'm being myself, I'm trying to be myself. I mean, beyond that. So our practice is how to work 10,000 hours to learn to let the self be water, fluid, not frozen. And then, when it's frozen, to know that and to release that. You make a mistake, you know that, you release that. Or you meet the moment and you're not fresh. Sometimes this happens. And then to know that and just to release that. I remember uh, my training in how to teach retreat came from a, a great teacher named Norman Feldman. And... I learned so many lessons from him. One of them was Norman just came back from India. This was three years ago, I think. He just came back from India. We were co-teaching a silent Vipassana retreat. He was struggling a bit with um, jet lag, and then he found out that there was a bombing in Mumbai. So he had a little radio, and so in our break, he turned on this little radio so we could hear what was going on because he had just been at the hotel. And he wondered if he'd known people. You can imagine. He was really gripped by this. So we're sitting there listening to the reports. And then I... I and Norman was really emotional. And I said, Oh, uh, I think we might be missing the session. So we shut off the radio, we checked the time, and we had like completely missed the session we were supposed to teach. So I'm feeling like a complete idiot. We ran over to the hall. We went and we walked in. Everybody is sitting there in perfect posture. We were like 25 minutes late. for, And you could feel the energy, like everyone waiting for us, and we sat down. And then afterwards, uh, uh, we ended, we went back into our little room together to talk. I felt so badly, you know, all the whole session. I was just like, I can't believe that we did that. And then Norman was just, we were late. That was it. There was no gripping around it, you know. And he thought it was kind of funny that I was, like, thinking about this so much. And, um, and that was good, because, you know, at the time I was like, I need to be the best teacher, you know. And I show up right on time, or show up early. I always showed up early for a second. And Norman, he made a mistake. It's okay. How are you when you make a mistake? What happens to you when you make a mistake? When you make a mistake, do you bite down on the branch of the tree and really dig in, either by blaming in or blaming out? Or do you let go completely and just fall on your back and are crushed, maybe for days? Or are you still stuck in the tree and you can't make a move because you're frozen about some stupid thing you said today or yesterday or last week? Some dumb thing you did. How do we live where 
when we get frozen, it's okay. And then we release that also. How do we have an ego that has enough courage that it can make contact with whatever's going on in the moment, meet it, harmonize with it, and then let go of it? Just drop it after. How do you do that? So, what I'd like to do is to um, do a little exercise together just to explore this a little bit. To just explore where we can uh, bring our practice to life and where we're frozen. Okay. So, the way I would like to do this is as a partner exercise. Now, in this Sangha, it's very interesting to do partner exercises because all of us have all kinds of relationships with each other. You know, you might be with someone you don't get along with. You might be with someone who's your teacher. You might be with someone who is, uh, you know, you is your massage therapist, your accountant, your psychologist. I mean, there are so many overlapping uh, roles we have. So let's also explore that too to be here and, and, and if you're with someone that you have a relationship with in another sphere, just check out what that's, what that's like also. And if it completely freaks you out, then just sit in the corner and watch <laughs> and be God. Um, so the last thing I'll say is uh, let's really try wholeheartedly to do this uh, practice together. Okay, so find a partner, introduce yourself, and then sit face to face, and then we'll do a little guided meditation together. Okay? So as you sit face to face with your partner, just let your breath be natural. And instead of staring at your partner's face, allow them to see your face as you look to their face. Check your skin. Let your skin practicing. And let your face and the skin on your face match how you feel. Notice if you've put on your social face. Notice if there's a default face. And let your partner see your face without losing your breathing. How you feel changes. Notice when the face or the breathing freezes up.
there's some awkwardness, then be awkward. If you're scared, you can be one with that energy also. You don't have parts. What your partner seeing is how you are in this moment. It doesn't need to be another you behind that. Let your face match how you feel. The person that you're looking at has been awkward like you. They've been at ease. Just like you. And how they feel is changing. Just like you. person you're looking at is getting bold, you can see it in their face. They're aging just like you are. Let them see your face. person you're sitting with is doing their best. They're doing the best they can. Just like you. separated from those they love, like you. And they've felt so much, just like you have. Right now, they're doing their best. Let them see your face. Can you see their face? Notice when you freeze.
Bones. Just tracking sensations of the body, peripheral images. giving the tongue and gums some space. And then you can thank your partner. A bow is good. And then match up with another couple. And then I just want you to talk together as a group of four about what that was like. So, how was that for you? What did you notice? It's really easy to talk about. How was it for you? How was your life? It's very relaxing. It's relaxing. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just easy to follow instructions. Yeah. <laughs> so just listen to the instructions and just <laughs> relax. Someone else. Andrea. The feeling that arrived when he would he would remind us that there's no parts to ourselves. So, so I, what we're getting at is those aren't parts of yourself. When you're using something as a subway pool, that's you. Mm-hmm. But when you stand back going, in the moment, oh, that's this part over here and this part over here. In that moment, it's an analysis. For me, it was amazing to see how much it moved the way I felt myself being seen and the way I saw this other person go yeah. from visually from one eye to the other eye to full face to yeah. all these things but an energetic thing I'm sure the words to use but how how relentlessly dynamic the experience was. Yeah. I 
I see someone in passing on the street, I, it's this one still shot, so that becomes the image that I yeah. latch onto, but this experience with him, yeah. that that got blown out of the water, so oh. I just go onto one piece of him or yeah. myself in the same way. Thank you. Even when I say it, you know, to, to see the other person's trying their best, I really feel like, wow. Oh. Yeah. Um, there's this phrase you hear a lot in practice, wholehearted. Wholehearted practice. Dogen uses it a lot. So I repeat it a lot, wholehearted. And just when I was preparing for this talk, I, I was thinking about that term a lot. To really embody that term, wholehearted. Yeah? So, wholehearted means that if you come here and you keep learning practice, and then you keep bringing it to every encounter, then you begin to know what the Buddha was pointing at, which is wholehearted practice. That means your whole heart, or what Jung says, your whole self, which is actually unknowable to you. So you can't even do it. So your whole self is just a gate. It's just a doorway. It swings different ways. Receiving, performing. And how do we allow for that? So how can you show up as yourself? When are you going to show up as yourself without the bullshit? I remember asking my teacher once, so what is transcendence then in this practice? And she said, the only thing we're transcending in this practice is bullshit. <laughs> it's so important. When you're sick, how do you be sick with your whole heart? Just there in your bed. Ah. Oh. What's it like? Oh, just to be sick with your whole heart. Or, it's a party, and you're happy. And sometimes it's like really hard to just be happy. Like something's wrong. If like, I'm not worrying about anything. <laughs> I'm just happy. So how to be in the moment with nothing extra how to really give yourself. So, the self that is healthy, it initiates, shows up for the moment, makes contact, you know, actually can make contact, and then it drops it, and then repeats again. And that's the piece around resilience. Can you notice where you're frozen? And drop it, and try again. Did anybody notice where they were frozen? Anybody freeze up? Stuart? I actually noticed the complete opposite. <clears throat> after a few of these exercises that I've done with him, yeah. um, it, it's kind of weird. I feel emotionally naked, so it's... For me, like my brain is going batshit crazy, but then you staying on the moment. Um, it's... It's weird, I feel more present doing these exercises oh. than when I meditate, because all the time I'm meditating, my, my mind drifts off and I've got to come back, but doing these, it's yeah. kind of strange to liberate. Yeah. So what I'm suggesting is this is the same thing we're doing in our meditation practice. Yeah, I agree, yeah. So, so maybe you can explore that a little. So you are the energy of this moment. You are a part of the energy of this moment. And that energy is right behind your navel. 
And that's what we're doing in the meditation practice. So the relational piece and the meditative piece are not made separate. Because that's what we do. So when I first started practicing, all I wanted to do was deep concentration. I wanted to get enlightened. That's it. Don't, I didn't want to know about like loving kindness and stuff like that. I just wanted to concentrate. I wanted to be enlightened. And then, like, the, all the depth of insight and levels and stages that I was experiencing in practice had no impact on my relational lives with my friends at all. They had nothing to do with each other. It actually, so, like, you can go really deep in one column and not connect it to another column at all. But that's why I'm stressing this point, because you can waste a lot of time um, seeing the practices as split. And it's just a matter of technique, I think. So that, that we're dropping, we're entering, and when you sit, you're being yourself. You're just being yourself. You're not sitting to get anywhere. And then when you come into this room... How can you come into this room just as yourself? Naked, just as yourself. Or, you're coming into the room a little frozen. I'm a little frozen. frozen. Just be frozen. It's okay. Or, does anyone here come come to the sit distracted? (laughs) It's like, what would that be like? Well, if the energy of the moment is distracted, what's it like just to be distracted to be? Or do you just sit there going, I'm so distracted, the room is so still. Why am I distracted? I'm always distracted. It's the same thing with everything. I try it and I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Not good enough with anything and I'm fat. (laughs) Someone said to me recently, it's not freedom everybody wants. Everyone really just wants to lose five pounds. <laughs> I like that. I was going to... Anyways. If you wholeheartedly show up to the moment, you begin to feel whole, and you begin to feel complete, and you begin to work out that strain that causes so much damage over time. You can't be in it, Sebastian. So are we kind of talking about the presence of, let's use the term mindfulness? I'm just trying to understand the mind, the, the presence of mindfulness versus yeah. like reactivity. Yeah. So if I'm completely, I am anger, yeah. and I lash out and I physically harm somebody, yeah. I'm so with that anger uh-huh. that I've reacted. Mm-hmm. So how do we address that? Is that the presence of the mindfulness of, yeah. of being angry? But where does that reactivity, how do we... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're sitting here. Every, every day I wake up and I just sit here. And if there's anger, I learn how do I harmonize with anger. But I'm just sitting here. So I'm not turning it on myself. I'm not turning it on someone else. I'm not hurting my body. I'm not hurting someone else's body. And I learn how to take care of the anger energy. Or if I'm like, I've really got to concentrate so deeply that I need to get past the anger, then you're in trouble. So what I'm saying is, when the anger... Because then anger is a part of you. But what we're trying to say is, instead of making anger a part of you, be angry. Okay? That's why we have ethics. So then if you're with someone else and you're feeling angry, don't do anything, don't say anything, and go do sun salutations. Or go for a run, or whatever. Or a beer. And get to know the anger, so that now you have a practice that's teaching you how to take care of anger. But I'm not using the word mindfulness, because I don't want you to think you're being mindful of anger. Because then the anger's over there, there's me over here trying to be mindful of the anger. I want you to know what it's like to feel anger. And anger doesn't come for no reason. Anger shows up because of conditions. So in those conditions, get to know what it's like to be angry in those conditions and start to take care of it. And then you won't act it out. And then you won't hurt yourself and you won't hurt other people. And then if you slip up and you say something stupid, 
you don't spend three weeks feeling bad that you said something stupid. You then recognize that it was anger. And, and you learn from that, and you contemplate that, and you investigate that. In other words, you're not adding more and more layers back here. Yes, well. So my question is, is similar. I mean, yeah. some techniques of, of emotional regulation, some emotions can carry and warm you, anxiety, anger, yeah. sadness, and whatnot. Yeah. And you can really counterproductive for yeah. who you are right? yeah. when you cannot regulate those emotions. So when, when you say, don't observe emotion, be the emotion, mm -hmm. how do you reconcile that with, with the school of thought of, of separating yourself yeah. when that you are not? Sure. To regulate Absolutely. Now, I don't want to just say there's one technique, and all you have to do is this one technique, and you'll be free. Because it depends on the person. Sometimes we have to use a different technique with a different kind of character. So I don't want to say this is like the only technique. But even so, I think it's important that we are able to drop deeply into the sensation of what we're feeling without letting it take over and without trying to take over it. And that's a dance that's not clean. There's no clean way to do it. I can't say like, oh, well, if you just follow this stream of breath for this long, then you'll feel it and you'll just stream through it. If you're going to really get to know dukkha, it feels like dukkha. If you really get to know boredom, it feels, it's boring. Some of us are trying to like, well, I really want to know the energy of boredom, but I don't actually like really want to feel bored. But like to, to know boredom, it's really boring. It's so boring. <laughs> and to, to be in the hospital in bed post-surgery and be in pain, to be there and feel pain. To know the energy of pain. Or to be at a, a party, like I was saying earlier, and to be happy. Just be happy. Like, don't hold back. Be happy. When, I, when it was my bar mitzvah, when I was 13, I was in love with a girl. And so during my bar mitzvah, how I, I just wanted to know if she liked me or not. So I sang to her the whole time. So I was like, I was so in love with her. So, so during the time I got up on the stage, there was 300 people there, and I just looked at her and I just sang my portion to her. And then afterwards, the rabbi was like, so how was it? Did you smile at your parents? He was like, no, I, I just was in love with the girl. And so I just sang my portion to her. She was like, that's great. That's For him, that was so beautiful. But I was like doubting it, like you're not supposed to do this on your bar mitzvah, it's like holy, and I was supposed to sing to God and everything, but I was singing to a girl. And the rabbi thought this was beautiful, this was great. And I remember it was like one of the first times that I ever saw myself judging myself. I was like, oh, why couldn't I just like know that that was okay? Instead, I was like, oh, why did I, you know? That was a really good lesson. It's the only lesson I learned in. <laughs> so um, let's chant and then next week Simone is going to give a talk is there anything you want to say about that or should people prepare certain clothing Um, and also before we chant, I just want to let you know that uh, Cassie and Pat, who are not here, have written you a letter. Um, the letter is about 
the structure of center of gravity. And as some of you know, if you've been following Facebook, uh, we're starting a membership drive. So what that means is, in order for us to stay afloat and get, offer the programs we need to offer and have basic administration and have a space, we need your support. So part of that support comes from the donations you put in generously at the end of the evening, but that doesn't cover at all uh, the expense of offering how much we offer, especially the amount we're offering online, which is increasing more and more. We're about to offer two more online courses. So the only way we can do that is if people contribute on a monthly basis as a member. So if you can afford $5, if you can afford $10, if you can afford $25 or $100, the money can, you can set it up so the money gets debited out of your account. You can do it through PayPal. There's lots of options. And we were just approved as a charity. So Center of Gravity is officially a charity, which means you can deduct a percentage of how much you donate on your taxes at the end of the year. And this is really, really important to us because there's programs that we've been having a hard time offering because they don't really produce any revenue. So, for example, mindfulness for families. Uh, it costs money to have a space. It costs money to pay a facilitator. It costs money to do advertising. But it, the mo most of the families coming don't really have enough money to spend to cover the cost of how much it is to, to run it. So I really encourage you, when you get this letter and you get home, just take some time and think about how much this community means to you, how it's benefited you. And if there's like some amount of money that you could commit to for the year that feels good, that once a month would allow you to become a member. And then there's perks for being a member, which you can read about on the website, discounts for retreats and things like that. So please consider this when you get home. If you don't have a copy, there are some on the blue shelf, and um, you can read all about it. Okay? And you're going to hear a lot more about this for the next couple, couple of months. Are there any questions about that? Yes? What do the symbols mean? Oh, yeah. That's my name. Uh, Sho Ken. Um, so my, my teacher gave me this name, Sho Ken, which is like the word drishti in Sanskrit. It's from the Heart Sutra. Sho means bright, and you can see the character is looking down. And it's bright. It's a, that's an eyelash. And Ken means to kneel down. And you can see the characters kneeling down. So it means uh, bright seeing, to, to look down at things and see, see clearly. So I, I just was given it, and it's a stamp. So I'm stamping on everything. <laughs> My son's got it on his arms. It's all over our house. So. Let's finish by chanting. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let's awaken. Awaken. May all beings be happy. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from their ancient and twisted karma. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. May all beings be free from every form of suffering. Thank you.